who are sixth grade and under, that they're going to head upstairs to be a part of what we call kids crew worship, a worship time that is specifically for them. Our leaders are going with them as well, and uh, one of the the favorite things for many of our kids to participate in is that kids crew worship time each week, and so they're going to go upstairs and have a great time together this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. If you weren't here last week, we began a new sermon series studying through the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. Now, last week we spent most of our time in chapter 1 looking at sort of the, uh, the setup, if you will, looking at the, the reason why the letters were written and some of the background information on not only these seven churches, but even just the, the setting itself where John is imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos and he's writing these letters to these churches. He's telling the vision that the Holy Spirit is relating to him on the Lord's Day, he tells us in Revelation chapter 1. And so beginning this week, over the course of the next seven weeks, we will study one at a time through these seven letters to seven churches. And in each of these letters to these churches, we find uh, a lesson or really lessons for, for us in the church still today. These were letters written with words uh, that were intended to give instruction and intended to both to encourage and to exhort or to, to build up these churches in these different cities. The, each letter, of course, bears the name of the church in the city to which it was addressed. But by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, these words continue to speak to us. And even at the time that they're written, there seems to be this awareness on the part of John and certainly on the part of the churches that these letters would, would be circulated amongst the different churches. They would be shared with these different churches as these believers got a hold of this, that they would, they would read it, they would take it in for themselves, but also share it with others around them. And so this morning we begin by looking at the letter that's written to the church in Ephesus. Of course, we're familiar with the city of Ephesus because we have a Bible book that bears the same name, the book of Ephesians, written to the church at Ephesus as well to encourage them by Paul. But this is being written by John, speaking the words of Christ to the church in Ephesus. So let's begin together in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. John writes, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now I want to pause there because as we go through these seven different letters, you will find that each time that one of these letters is being written, that there is a familiar pattern that develops, okay? There is a familiar pattern here of these letters as they are addressed to these churches. And so you even see in the notes on the back of your sermon guide today that there, there are a pattern of sorts, and, and I make a footnote there that will follow this same pattern of the command, uh, rather the commendation, the condemnation, the command, the call, this pattern of sorts that is laid out. There's some rhythm to how these letters are written and the way that they're structured even. And each one of these letters bears this address to the angel of the church in, and then of course fill in the blank for the name of the city. Now, there's been some some debate and some uh, dialogue over the years in in biblical scholarship about what does this mean to the angel of the church in Ephesus? Is it talking about an angel that was uh, maybe maybe responsible for this church? Was there an angel who had a, a territory of sorts? Are these angels symbolic of something else? What is the meaning of, of this? 
and uh, I've read a lot about this, and a lot has been written about it, and uh, here, is, here is my best understanding of this. In the New Testament, the same word that could be translated as angel is also the identical word that is at different times translated to mean the messenger. And so you could translate this to say to the messengers of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church, to the messenger of the church. The emphasis seems to be someone who is in, in a role of speaking into the church in Ephesus. So this is being, this is being addressed sort of formally to Someone, be it church leadership, be it the pastor or the elders of the church, and that's what many uh, writers, biblical scholars think, that, that this is being addressed to the elders of the church in Ephesus or Smyrna, uh, so on and so forth as you go through the different cities. In any regard, it, it seems to be written to someone who has a, a role of speaking into the church. So Christ is relating these words through John to leaders who would then speak this word of truth to the church at Ephesus. And so to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we don't have to wonder what does that mean because in chapter one, it, that is interpreted for us. That's a part of John's vision that we studied last week in chapter 1. But chapter 1 also tells us the meaning of the one who walks among the seven stars, the seven golden lampstands. This is referring to Christ who is speaking to these seven churches. The seven golden lampstands are these seven churches that are being addressed. And this is his message for them in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And I know that you are enduring uh, patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so, according to this pattern, this, this unfolding, a repeating pattern of how these letters are, are written, we find that there are these these core elements, and you see according to the different subheadings that are in bold in your notes, the, the, the label that I've given to these. And as we study through each of these seven letters, we will use these same categories or subheadings, if you will, these same parts of the letter as a whole to help us identify both the message of the letter to the church for whom it was written, but also the application of how it continues to speak to us today. And so first we find in these letters that there is a word of commendation, that the churches are being praised or commended for something. And so in this address to the churches, uh, to the church rather in Ephesus, we find that the Ephesian church was known both for its right beliefs and for its right practices. You could say that they had a sound orthodoxy, that's a, the, the right belief, and also orthopraxy, that's the right practice. In other words, they not only understood what they should believe, but they put it into practice. It 
it, it wasn't just something that they ascribed to, but you could tell that they believed it because of their practices. And so he says to them things like this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. You cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. You're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. He says, you've not grown weary. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. These are all great things commending the church in Ephesus. But in order to better understand how significant it is that there's this transformation that's taken place in the lives of these believers in Ephesus, let's, let's do some work on the background of this Ephesian church in the city Ephesus itself. The city of Ephesus was really in, in many ways the most important city in the Asian world. Certainly of the seven cities that are addressed by these seven letters, this is the most important in terms of its, its role in the Roman Empire, its, its prominence, its significance in the Roman Empire. Not only in the Roman Empire, but really in all of the Asian world. And so I have a map that I want to show you that this map shows the city of Ephesus and where it's located. And, and it shows this in regard to what it would be the modern-day country of Turkey and modern-day country of Greece. And so you see, now it's labeled at the top, the theater in Ephesus, and that's because this is just from a set of graphics and images that I have in some Bible software that I use. And so uh, actually one of the one of the other graphics we're going to see, one of the other pictures, deals with the theater. And so you, we'll, we'll get to the theater in a minute. But you see, located right in the center of the screen, Ephesus. You see that Ephesus is located really at, at, at this key central location along the Aegean Sea, which is there in a harbor at the mouth of the Caister River, which flows from inland Turkey, and you, in modern day, it wasn't Turkey in those days, but flows to the Aegean Sea, and there you find Ephesus located. Now, the other cities that are addressed are inland somewhat. Ephesus is the port city. So if you were traveling from the island of Patmos, which is one of these small islands to the west or to the left on this map of where Ephesus is located, you would, you would stop first at Ephesus. Ephesus was located at the, the intersection of several major roads that were centers of, of commerce and, and traffic uh, for moving troops and, and goods and other things throughout the Roman Empire. And often if you were traveling from either from modern-day Italy, from Rome, or from Greece, and you wanted to travel into the Middle East, you wouldn't cross the Mediterranean. Rather, you would travel to Ephesus, and then you would, you would embark there, or disembark rather, there, and travel throughout Asia from Ephesus. So it's a very key city, both for its commerce, for its military significance strategically. Uh, in fact, one ancient historian who was a contemporary of Jesus, a, a historian named Strabo, wrote that Ephesus was the market of Asia. In other words, all the goods and all the things from all of Asia flowed to the rest of the empire through Ephesus. And so it's a very important city. In the day of Jesus, the population of Ephesus would have been north of a quarter of a million people, which means that for its day, this would have been one of the major urban centers in all of the world. So more than 250,000 people lived in Ephesus. Ephesus was a self-governing city, which meant that there were no Roman troops 
stationed there. That was also a significant thing because most of the cities in Asia were occupied cities. There was some garrison of Roman troops stationed there to preserve order, but not in Ephesus. And so many Ephesians were free Roman citizens, which means that they had rights and privileges that many others didn't have. The city itself, because of where it was located in this key harbor, had many significant structures that had influenced throughout the rest of Ephesus. One of those was the Ephesian theater. And so that one of the next slides shows a picture of the Ephesian theater. This is in comparison, just to give you some, some comparison of the size. This compares the size of the Ephesian theater to Wrigley Field today, okay? Just to give you some comparison. The Ephesian theater seated somewhere between 17 and 25,000, whereas Wrigley Field seats about 41,000, okay? And so you can see a comparison there. Let's look at the, the next graphic. Also shows another picture of the, uh, the city of Ephesus. If you were to see in, uh, in, in Paul's day, this is the basic layout of the city of Ephesus. Now you see in the upper left-hand corner is the harbor, and extending directly from the harbor, you see the bath gymnasium complex, and then along that there was, there was uh, this, this large paved road that was known as the Arcadian Way. And so you would arrive in the harbor and you would travel up the Arcadian Way to the theater, which was located right on the side of a mountain, Mount Pylon, and then you see the wall surrounding the city. And then if you follow, okay, north of the theater, uh, well, it's not actually north, but again, relative to, to us, let's say above the theater, you see stadium and then the processional way. And then way up on the, the top of the hill, it, it's difficult to make out in this picture, but you see the temple of Artemis. And then there's sort of an inset here that, that gives you a different picture of the temple of Artemis. I want to see a few more pictures of this theater before we actually look at a picture of the temple of Artemis. We have a picture of the, uh, the temple and or rather the theater in Ephesus, that gives you some idea of the size of the stage. Now, again, you can't make it out great because of just it's, it's, it's magnified several times for you to see here. But in the upper right-hand side, you see the orchestra pit, and you see it says stage, and there's a person. And then if you were to look down on the, the larger picture itself, you can see, the draw, just follow the dotted lines, and there is the person standing on the stage. So this was a very large theater. And what was interesting about the design of the theater was a person could stand on the theater with no modern amplification, all right? No sound system, no microphone to speak in. And it said that you could be heard throughout the theater from that stage. It was a, a really a, a marvel of design. There's another picture here that shows the ruins of the theater today. Now, this is the theater as it sits in modern times. But again, you, you, if you look right in the middle, it's, it's difficult to make out in this picture, but right in the middle, there is a person standing, if you can see that. It, it'll give you, again, some size of this, uh, of this theater. In Acts, we have a story in Acts of Paul, and as Paul traveled to Ephesus... And there was an uprising that broke out in the city of Ephesus because as Paul began to evangelize in Ephesus, it was hurting the commercial trade, which was the sell largely of these, these little silver statues to Artemis. And so the silversmiths were upset at the Christians because as people were converting to Christ and, and denying their, their pagan gods, these little deities, and they stopped buying this, it was hurting the the pocketbook of these silversmiths. And so there arose this, this backlash against the Christians. 
And there's a story in Acts of when uh, a riot broke out and all of the people gathered in the theater at Ephesus and for four hours straight they cried out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then Paul stood up to address them and basically shared the gospel with the whole group. But in spite of how great this theater was, and and all of its significance, the real treasure of the city of Ephesus was actually the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, the only thing that remains of the temple to Artemis today is one column and a part of the foundation of the the altar itself. And so uh, you lose the sort of the significance of its height and its, and its massiveness. But this was, in, in every way, this was an absolute, uh, an, an absolute sight to behold in its day. And so you find these great columns that lined this, this porch along the front. And there in the very center was an altar with a statue to the Greek goddess Artemis, which was also known in Latin as the goddess Diana, the goddess of fertility, the goddess of the hunt. And so if you wanted, if you wanted to receive blessing, if you, wanted to, if you wanted things to go well for you, then you would go to the temple of Artemis and you would offer sacrifices to Artemis there in the temple and you would, you would uh, cry out and, and you would basically hope that Artemis would hear you and that she would bless and answer your prayers. It was this pagan cult practice, and so there were many temple priests and temple prostitutes who were a part of this this, uh, cultic worship as well. But also, because it was a holy site, the temple to Artemis became a safe haven for for criminals, basically. If If you lived at the, the temple, and if you remained at the temple, then you couldn't be arrested regardless of your crime. And so it became a real safe haven for criminals. In fact, the Greek historian Heraclitus wrote that no one could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. And so Ephesus was a very pagan city, a very, uh, a very large, significant city, but uh, pagan and, and immoral, godless, we might say, in many ways. And yet, out of this birthed one of the most successful and prominent early churches. In fact, we know that at the end of his second missionary journey, Paul stopped in Ephesus, and then he returned on his third missionary journey. And on his third missionary journey, Paul spent more than three years in the city of Ephesus, training the leaders and evangelizing there and equipping them. Uh, The gospel had first gone to Ephesus through Priscilla and Aquila, and later through Apollos. Paul built on that. And then when the city of Jerusalem was laid siege by the Romans and the church scattered, the apostle John himself relocated to the city of Ephesus and spent several decades in the city of Ephesus ministering there and working there and building up the church. In fact, so successful was this work in the city of Ephesus that Acts chapter 19 verses 9 and 10 tell us this. Look at what Acts chapter 19 verses 9 and 10 say about this work in Ephesus. It says, It says, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's what the church was known of, this movement in those days, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him 
reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now this is telling about when Paul faced opposition in the city of Ephesus, what he decided to do was withdraw with the leaders of the church and to begin to disciple and equip them and pour in them for the work that they were going to have to do. And then verse 10 tells us this, Acts 19 verse 10. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So so successful was this church movement in the city of Ephesus that within a matter of a few years, all of Asia had heard the gospel because of the work of Paul and these early church leaders in Ephesus. Revival broke out in this city that was once known for its pagan worship. So this was a city where, where the church had flourished. This was a city where many great and significant things had happened through the work of the gospel in the city of Ephesus. And Paul is commending them for their faithfulness. So when you think about what do we have in common with the Ephesians, well, the truth is, you think about this church. Let's make it very personal for a moment. Like, like the church at Ephesus, we could say that uh, this church has been around for many years. In fact, this year, 2015, uh, our church will celebrate its 123rd anniversary in December of this year. And so for 123 years, First Baptist Church of Chickasha has been built on the faithful service of people who were committed to the gospel, people who committed their lives, people who, who made it their, their life's ambition to to be connected to the church and help work to build the church. So it, we, we have a lot in common when we think about the faithfulness of people. In fact, I have heard so many stories. I've kind of made it my point in the time that I've been here to learn a lot about the history and the story of First Baptist Church. I, I'm really fascinated by it. And so anytime I can get any, my hands on anything that has to do with the past of our church, I, I like to read it or look at the pictures or hear the stories and and study up on it. And it's really awesome to hear the stories over years and years and years of people who have faithfully ministered in this community through the work of this church. We have a great story. Like the church at Ephesus, it could be said of the people of First Baptist Church are that, that we have been patient and endured, that we have toiled and worked hard, that we have bared with evil, that we have uh, that we have ministered, we have not grown weary, we have stood for what is true and right. Okay, so there's a lot of connection, but I fear that there's, there's another way that we can really identify with the Ephesians as well. Not only in the way that Paul, uh, rather that John, commends them, but in the way that, th that he speaks this word of condemnation, that really Christ through John is speaking this word of condemnation. Because the problem with the church in Ephesus was that it had lost its first love. Although they had remained faithful and true for years, although they had ministered faithfully in the midst of persecution and opposition, although they had worked with great labor and toil to spread the gospel so that all of Asia heard the gospel through the work of the Ephesians, Jesus is saying to them, but I have this thing against you. You've lost your first love. In other words, he's saying to them, you're doing all the right things, but you're doing them for the wrong reasons. Because your heart is not in the things that you're, you're just doing it out of ritual. You're just doing it out of habit. And not because you're really motivated with, with the love of Christ. They've lost their first love. 
when I think about our church, can I just be really honest with you as your pastor for a moment? That uh, let, me, let me tell you a little bit about me, and then I'll speak a little bit about our church. Of all of the things that are written about all of the churches in the book of Revelation, of these seven churches, of, of the word written to all of these churches, this is probably the one that I tend to wrestle with the most personally. I mean, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me personally. This, is, this tends to be the one that I wrestle the most with. Doing all of the right things, but doing them at times for the wrong reasons. Doing it out of habit rather than out of a real heart of love and passion. Doing the right things because you know it's what you're supposed to do, but not necessarily because your heart is motivated and driven by a passion. If there were one of these letters that really speaks to me on a deep level, I feel like this is it. This is the letter. And, and I don't mean that this is the only thing. All of them speak to me just as I think they will you. But this is the one that I feel like that I can personally identify with the most. But can I tell you that I, I fear that I'm not alone, that maybe many of us in the room who have taught Sunday school, who have worked with children and in, in, in the preschool or taught youth, you've gone on trips to camps and you've worked in VBS and you've given faithfully and you serve and, and yet somewhere along the way you find that it just becomes the thing that you do, right? I mean, it's Sunday again, we wake up, we get dressed, we go to church, we, we fall into these, these patterns and, and these rituals of sorts and we get in a rut so to speak spiritually and along the way the fire that once burned in us is a lot dimmer than it used to be and the the danger of that is that cynicism sets in when that happens right we become cynical about everything we we look at everybody else and 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 we we look beyond what people are doing and we, we tend to look at their motives and we tend to make judgments about the motives of other people. And I'm speaking real honestly here about myself for a moment because these are the things that I wrestle with, having a cynical heart and thinking that I've been there, I've done that, right? I mean, I've, I've seen it all. And yet, what the Holy Spirit wants to say to the church in Ephesus is, come back to where you once were. What, what the Holy Spirit, I feel like, is saying to me and, and the message that this is preaching into my life and, and that he wants to say to us as a church today is come back to your first love. Come back to that fire that once burned bright. Come back to the things that motivated you. You know, you can look at, most, most married couples can look at their, their marriage and they can sort of point to the time when they would say, you know, the honeymoon was over at that point, right? The, the newness had worn off, right? Uh, the, there's that honeymoon phase that newly married couples go through. And so if there are any newly married couples in the room, I'm not trying to burst the bubble, but it's going to go away at some point, right? Uh, I mean, after a while, you don't sit next to each other on, on the couch. You know, you've got your own space in your own chair, or you're even in the other room watching your own thing. Right? I mean, the, 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 there was that time when you couldn't get enough, and, and uh, after a while, that sort of tends to rub off. And and any couple that's been married for, for any length of time, this year Rayleigh and I will celebrate our 15th anniversary in August. And any couple that's been married for any length of time can tell you that you have to work to stoke those fires, right? I mean, it takes work. It doesn't just happen naturally. You have to invest in your marriage. You have to invest in that relationship. You have to work to keep those, those fires burning. And in the same way, that we, that we think of investing in our marriage and investing in those relationships. It's as if 
Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, listen, the honeymoon is over, but I want you to feed the fires that once burned bright. So the condemnation, the problem is that the church had lost its first love. Here's the command that Jesus gives the church. Jesus called the Ephesian church to remember where they had once been and to return there again. So they were to remember and repent. That's really what returning is. Returning is an act of of, of repenting and coming back to where they once were. He wanted them to remember from where they had fallen, he writes, and to repent and do the works you did at first. And so his command was that they would remember, and remembering is an act of discipline in this way. He's not just talking about, you know, oh, bring to, bring to mind the stories, but when he, when he writes here that they should remember what he's, what he's calling them to do is to the spiritual discipline of going backward and, and looking at where they had been, of being reminded the, the closeness, the intimacy that they once had with God so that they might repent of where they are now and return. So remembering is a discipline, and repentance requires discipline, right? Repentance requires that we would sacrifice, that we would... That we would do really an about face, a 180, that we would turn from the direction that we're headed and that we would turn back in the direction that we ought to be, that we ought to be going, right? And so we should remember, we should repent, we should return. And how is it that he tells them that they should do this? This phrase is so key. Look in, in verse five. Repent, and then he says this, and do the works you did at first. Now, Hasn't he already commended them that they remained faithful and true to the, to the right things? Yes. Hasn't he told them, you listen, you've believed the right things, you've done the right things? So he's not calling them out of any deep sins, right? At least he, he's not calling them away from any real heresy. Now, there will be word written to some of these other churches about their practices and, and the error of their ways, calling them back from, from their sin. But What he's saying to the Ephesians is, you've done a lot of the right things, but I want you to go back to the things you did at first. I want you to go back to that time when you served me out of a heart that that was passionate. Can you remember what it was like when you first came to Christ? Can you remember what it was like when you first gave your life to him? The, The fire that burned, the passion that you had for Jesus? You remember what it was like that you weren't ashamed of the gospel? You would tell anyone and everyone. I already shared this morning when I baptized Heston that I was six years old when I gave my life to Christ, and I was in the first grade. And after I gave my life to Jesus, I went to school, and I shared with my class. You know, we had share time or like a show and tell time in in first grade and I stood up and I told my first grade class that I had given my life to Jesus and I told them what that meant and that they should do the same thing and a couple of my friends went home and asked their their parents questions and got saved too so that was my first sermon was in the first grade after it but can you think back to that passion that you had when you first came to Christ and that's what that's what these Ephesians are being called back to It's not that they had wandered away into these horrible sins. They were doing the right thing still, but in many ways their their heart wasn't in it. And he's calling them back saying, come back to that that passion, that love that, that was yours when you first believed. This is what it means for us to repent and return, I think. We recognize that we've 
strayed from our first love and we take the steps that are necessary to get back there. So let me use again, let me, let me try to use the illustration of a marriage again to try to uh, give this some context. So we talked about the honeymoon and how the honeymoon wears off and, and you have to feed that relationship, you have to invest in that relationship. Think about in, in a marriage relationship, if you were wanting to, if you were wanting to uh, have the, the, the passion, if you were wanting to try to fuel that relationship so that the, the fire would be rekindled, what would you do in that relationship? Now, you don't have to answer that out loud, but the married folks in the room especially, you can think about what are some of the things that maybe you used to do that you don't do, right? You used to get her flowers, but you don't do that very much anymore. You used to to uh, tell her how beautiful she looked. You used to go out of your way to make sure that she, she knew how special she was. You used to write him notes. You used to do little things to surprise him or to tell him how much you appreciate him, right? And so if, if you were thinking about your marriage and you wanted to rekindle that fire in your marriage, then, then you would do some of those things again, right? I mean, that's, that's what that looks like. And in a very similar way, that's what we think of when, or that's what I think of anyway, when I think of rekindling that fire in our relationship with Christ. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about writing love notes to Jesus or sending him flowers, right? I mean, it doesn't look like that. But I'm talking about the things that happened in early in your, in your Christian walk that were a part of that fire burning brightly. You couldn't get enough. You wanted to read the word. You wanted to, you wanted to sing songs. You wanted to tell people about Jesus. You wanted to be involved in Bible studies. Every time the doors of the church were open, you wanted to be there because you just wanted to soak it in and you, you couldn't get enough. Right? It's, it's about going back to that place and those passionate practices and doing those things. Again, that's what this letter is calling us back to. And so we've seen the the commendation, we've seen the condemnation, the command, and now the call. The call really is, is sort of the, the, the promise, the instruction. How are, we to, how are we to live this? And so he writes that those who overcome would receive the fulfillment of the promise God made to them. And so when he says that to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, this is a fulfillment of that promise, the, the tree of life which he says is in the, in the paradise of God. He's referring, to, he's referring to Eden in one sense, the Garden of Eden and the, and the tree that Adam and Eve were told not to eat of, and then they, they ate and, and they fell in sin. So there's a reference to that, but it's also a picture of that intimate relationship with God because in Eden, Adam and Eve shared that intimate, close walk with God. So it's calling us back to that intimate, close walk with God. And it says that if we overcome, if we endure, but not only that, if we repent and return back to the, that first love, that those who overcome will receive the fulfillment of that promise. In other words, we will have that, that intimate, close relationship with God that we once had. And so how do, we, how do we trust in and live in this promise for today? I want to give you three points of application, I think, that, that we take from this. Three ways that we can take this letter, these instructions that were written to the Ephesians, and we can apply this to our lives. The first one is this, is that we need to be broken over the callousness of our hearts. We need to recognize when we have been doing the right things for the wrong reasons, and over time there has been a, a sort of spiritual callousness that is built up on our hearts, and we need to be broken by that. And when I say broken, 
I mean to the point of, of praying, God, would you, would you do whatever it takes to break me of this? Lord, you know that my heart is cold and it's grown hardened. God, would you, would you break my heart of, of its hardness? John MacArthur writes in, in a commentary I have about uh, the, this letter written to the Ephesians. John MacArthur writes this. He says that the example of the Ephesian church, the, the example that it warns us about, is that right beliefs and outward service cannot make up for a cold heart. And we need to be broken over the callousness, the coldness, if you will, of our hearts toward the things of God. Not only that, secondly, we need to see our sin for what it really is. See, as our hearts become calloused, as we begin to do the right things for the wrong reasons, one of the things that I've noticed in my own life and I've noticed in the lives of other Christians as well is that we begin to justify our sin. We begin to explain away our sin. And so we, we begin to not think of our sin as a, as a really big deal because we, we create reasons, justifications why we sin and why we do the things that we do. And oftentimes, interestingly, we don't give others the same benefit of the doubt that we give ourselves. We don't extend to others the same grace that we want for our own selves, but we, be, we begin to justify and explain away our sin. But if we're to repent and return, we need to see our sin for what it really is. That it is an absolute rebellion against the authority of a loving God who gave himself for our sin. And when we willingly and knowingly sin and try to justify that sin before God, it's as if we mock his sacrifice for us. And so we need to see our sin for what it is. And then third is this. We need our affections stirred by things that will truly satisfy our hearts. Now, this may seem simple enough, but I thought long and hard this week about how to word this particular point. Because really what we're talking about is we need to have our hearts softened toward God. But I really thought long and hard about, well, how does that happen? How are our hearts softened toward the things of God? And, and this, is, this is what I've arrived at, is that really it has to do with our affections. Our hearts are symbolic for us of sort of the, uh, the seat of our emotions, right? It's the center of our affections, the things that we love, the things that we desire, the things that we long for. And what this scripture is telling us and what I'm trying to convey is that we need to have our desires grounded in something that can truly satisfy them. The problem is, for many of us, we tend to turn toward things that will never and could never satisfy us. And so our hearts wander, our affections are misplaced, if you will. And over time we find that our hearts grow calloused and we become, we become cold toward our sin. And what we need is for God's Holy Spirit to break through. We need for th that callen, callousness that's over our hearts to be, to be broken. We need to see our sin for what it is and ultimately we need to have our affections stirred so that we will not be satisfied by things that cannot satisfy us. And when we really understand what this is all about, we see that the truth is that nothing in this world can satisfy us the way that, that Christ can satisfy us. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 gives us this word of instruction. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it 
flows the springs of life. You know what's so interesting about that proverb is that proverb was written by Solomon. Solomon was a man that God granted great wisdom because he, he prayed and he asked God for it. And so God granted that wisdom to him. But later in his life, Solomon's heart wandered from what mattered. He began chasing after the, the gods, and I, I mean that with little g, right? The idols of his many wives. And his heart wandered from following after God. And so even the man who writes to us, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. The story is that his, his heart wandered. He didn't keep his heart the way that he should either. And, and what lesson do we learn? We learn that we are all susceptible to this trap. That if we don't guard and protect our hearts, they will wander and be pointed after all the wrong things. How far did the Ephesians fall? Well, Acts tells us that the Ephesian church was so successful that all of Asia heard the gospel through the work of the Ephesians. And yet, by the time that this is being written to them, which would have been, we don't know exactly, okay, but this would have been uh, roughly, roughly some, uh, somewhere between 45 and 60 years after the initial work in Ephesus that this letter was being written to them. So in a matter of two generations, this word of rebuke is being written that you, you do good things, but you do them for the wrong reasons. Your hearts are not in the things that you're doing. In a matter of a few generations, they had, they had fallen away. What does that say to us? Listen, if they, can, if they can fall away, we can fall away too. And so this word cries out for us to remember where we have once been and to repent that we might return there. So this morning, as we prepare for a time of invitation, I wonder, can you identify with the church at Ephesus? Can you identify with what's being written about the Ephesians? Do you ever wrestle with a sort of spiritual cynicism that you've seen it all, you've done it all, you've, you know, you, you've served, you've been there, you've done that? And you find that internally your heart grows sort of cynical and, and, and you begin to fall into that, that rut of doing the right things but maybe doing them for the wrong reasons. Then this morning, God's word wants to speak this truth to you. Remember where you have been. Remember, I mean as an act of worship, as an act of discipline, remember the things that God has done. Remember the words that he has spoken. Remember the things that you have seen and experienced God do in your life. And repent of your callousness. Be broken over your sin. Return to your former ways. Come back to your first love this morning. You bow your heads and close your heart. Close your eyes. Don't close your heart. <laughs> bow your head and close your eyes. God, this morning I pray that you would that you would penetrate the callousness of our hearts. Lord, help us to see our sin for what it is. Lord, reach into us beyond the the cynicism that at times convinces us that we're better than everyone else and better off than everyone else. And 